Welcome back to part two of this really cool discussion of an article called How the Government Sells Fear and Sickness, The Case of the Flu. This is written by Barry Brownstein, and it talks a lot about the flu vaccine program, but also talks about coronavirus and what we're seeing. And I think you guys will love this. If you have not listened to part one, go back and do that because it kind of goes in order and it'll be easier to sort of understand what I'm going to jump into next. But I like to keep these episodes relatively short because I'm personally not a fan of having to stop something in between and like halfway through and kind of go, okay, I'll get back to this because I never do. Anyway, so I understand what it's like to be busy, have a lot going on and want to just finish an episode, complete it and move on to the next thing. So I split this one into two and today is part two. So welcome back. I hope you're doing okay. I hope everybody's adjusting to kids and their school system. Ugh, I, I want to interview some teachers, actually, because what's going on with this remote learning thing is a disaster in itself. But back to this article. This is Barry Brownstein again. He's a professor of economics. And the name of the article, which was taken off its hosting site, because it's not really you know, speaking so favorably, about those in charge is called How Government Sells Fear and Sickness, The Case of the Flu. So continuing on, we just finished with Dr. Tom Jefferson, who's a physician and epidemiologist, saying that we have built, and I love this quote, we have built huge population-based policies on the flimsiest of scientific evidence. And we're looking at this idea of selling sickness. So in 2018, Dr. Jefferson and his colleagues basically were working on a multi-decade monitoring of the flu vaccine program. And so what they found from all their information is 71 healthy adults need to be vaccinated to prevent one person from having the flu. 71 people have to get that vaccine just to prevent one case. Okay, I don't know about you, but that is just unreal to think you're going to require that many people to have such a teeny tiny minuscule effect on whether or not it's spreading in the community. So Jefferson says, are we spending billions for nothing in return? Because he said there's massive worldwide machinery that is needed to produce new vaccines every year to address the viral changes and to address the poor persistence of antibodies in individuals. So are we spending billions for nothing? He says, currently, the registration of candidate influenza vaccines, so these are all the vaccines that are vying for the position as the one vaccine each year. Currently, the registration is based on their ability to trigger antibody response. And so I just talked about this in the last episode. The presence of antibodies is not the same thing as actually creating protection against the illness and protection against spreading it. So he's an epidemiologist and a physician. He understands this. I have learned this myself from other medical experts and physicians. Okay, so it says... The way that they decide on which candidate is going to be the one chosen for the yearly influenza vaccine is based on triggering a good antibody response. But he says, quote, antibody responses are poor predictors of field protection. Okay, field protection would be like in theory versus in practice. What happens when you're actually out there in the world? Is it doing anything? Okay, so... 
Another thing that Peter Doshi comes back to talk about is that the recorded deaths from influenza decline sharply already in the mid-1900s. And for those of you who have studied infectious disease, like I know many of you have, that is true for almost all diseases. The 1940s, 1950s, there was a sharp decline in those that had vaccines and those that there were no vaccines. So Peter Doshi is acknowledging, according to the CDC, recorded deaths from influenza declined sharply over the middle of the 20th century in the United States, and that was way before a vaccination campaign for influenza. So he says, and this is something most people I think don't know, I've mentioned it before, but he says that most flu cases appear to have nothing to do with influenza. Every year, hundreds of thousands of respiratory specimens are tested across the U.S. On average, only 16% are actually positive for influenza. That means we're looking at 85% of people who think they have the flu don't actually have the flu. So we're looking at other respiratory viruses that that flu vaccine is not going to help for because it's a completely different virus. And many of these viruses are completely unnamed. And they're just, you know, expected. In fact, COVID-19 would be one of those had it not been looked at under a microscope where everybody was hyperanalyzing it. We would have gone this year people thinking that there was like some other kind of flu going around or some kind of respiratory virus. Because we've had dozens of respiratory viruses. Many of them can be fatal, just like influenza, but they're not influenza and nobody does anything about it. We just kind of chalk it up to flu season and it's an ILI, an influenza-like illness. So Dr. Tom Jefferson goes on to kind of talk about the numbers And I have been very critical of the CDC numbers as it relates to flu deaths over the last several years because they inflate the numbers, okay? So they inflate the numbers because they're including things like pneumonia and all these other respiratory viruses. When they say about 30 to 40,000 people in an average year are dying from the flu, when you look at vital statistics, you're actually finding out it's more like 1,500 to 2,000 are confirmed influenza deaths. The others are things like other respiratory illnesses and pneumonia. So they inflate the numbers. This is exactly what we're seeing with COVID-19. They've taken COVID-19 that somebody's positive for, or in some cases not even positive for because they never were tested, and they put that as the cause of death even if there's something else that actually contributed or was the main underlying condition for that person's death. So we're seeing this weird overlapping and crossover where there shouldn't be one as it relates to the recording of death certificates with COVID-19. And the same thing has been happening for decades with the flu as well. So Tom Jefferson says, the standard quoted figure of 36,000 yearly deaths in the United States, flu deaths, is based on respiratory and circulatory deaths category, including all types of pneumonia, including all types of pneumonia, and secondary bacterial causes. So according to Peter Doshi, the CDC has also admitted that many of, many of the people that are reported as dying from influenza have never actually been tested for that virus and are not lab confirmed. So Peter Doshi wrote this essay in the British Medical Journal called Are U.S. Flu Death Figures More PR Than Science? 
And in that, he says that the CDC admits that when somebody dies from influenza, that most of these cases are actually never tested for the virus infection and they are never lab confirmed, which is interesting. So Peter Doshi kind of continues by saying, if the flu, in fact, is not a major cause of death, then this public relations approach, which is the PR campaign they're doing, is very exaggerated. And by linking the flu with pneumonia, which is its own separate thing, pneumonia is a bacterial infection, by linking the flu a virus with pneumonia, which is a bacteria, then he says the data is statistically biased. And he says, until it's corrected and until we have unbiased statistics, then we're not going to be able to have a really good logical discussion on public health policy. Okay, so just like the flu, we're looking at the deaths of the COVID-19 being inflated. We've got the CDC report that comes back saying only 6% of deaths are only COVID. That doesn't mean that some of the other ones weren't also involved, and that wasn't something that was part of it, but it certainly didn't take over the other 94%. There's no way. That's just impossible. When we see this kind of inflated number reporting and all these errors and mathematical and computation errors that we've seen from different states, how can we trust those responsible for public health policy. Again, listen, if they want to make these kinds of mistakes and if they want to make the flu vaccine optional or the COVID vaccine optional or staying at home optional, wearing masks optional, then it doesn't even matter that they're having these issues. I mean, for those who are informed, you can just stay away from it and ignore it. But when they take those ill-informed and non-evidence-based conclusions... And they make it the foundation or the basis for policies that are restricting your right to exist as a human being, okay? And they are going a step further now and mandating medical interventions, restricting your right to employment, restricting your children's right to an education, restricting your right to be free of pharmaceutical interventions. When they go to that next level, then we're going to have to talk about it. You see what I'm saying? It's not just that, oh, the numbers are wrong and whatever. It's your choice whether you get it or not. It's no longer our choice. And what we've seen with the COVID-19 thing is they've literally completely stopped our ability to exist. The only time that would be acceptable is if there was evidence behind it that said we've got some very serious airborne virus that's killing people like Ebola and we all need to stay at home until this goes away. And of course, in that case, you'd really be at home. You wouldn't be out shopping at Trader Joe's with a mask on if you really thought it was that dangerous. And if it's not that dangerous, then why are we wearing masks? Isn't it like the funniest, weird thing that we're seeing? Like if you're so scared that you expect schools to close because you're a teacher and you're saying you're, you're risking your life if you go back to teaching in a school, then what are you doing leaving your house ever? I sure hope you don't go places. I hope you don't go to the store. I hope you don't go anywhere there are people. Because if this virus is really that deadly and you think a piece of cloth covering people's faces is going to be the thing that keeps you from getting it, you're delusional. If it's really that scary, you should never leave your house. And if it's not that scary, you're comfortable coming out in society, 
then you should not be requiring people to wear masks or have these kinds of invasive mandates across people's personal liberties because it's not that scary. It just does not make sense at all. So anyway, Barry Brownstein, professor of economics, continues in this article. He says, it's no accident that the CDC promotes the flu vaccine by increasing fear of the flu. The way that they do this, according to Peter Doshi, is manufacturers actually conduct these campaigns for the flu vaccine by researching different ways and different techniques to promote dire consequences and make people believe that they are susceptible to bad cases of influenza. Okay, and then we also have something interesting here. Dr. Bob and I, I think, have covered this. If not, it's been on our list forever. We talked a little bit about this on our website, which is immunityeducationgroup.com. And there is a big problem here with conflicts of interest. So we have people working for pharmaceutical companies that previously worked for our regulatory agencies like the CDC. And there is this revolving door between the two. That should never happen because our regulatory agencies are supposed to do exactly what they're named after, which is to regulate industry as it relates to public health. Unfortunately, when you have these close ties and you have these secret contracts and you have these special relationships, they're not going to adequately monitor anything. In fact, the CDC even purchases thousands of doses of flu vaccine every single year. So they sort of have a vested interest in this. Now listen to, you should know this, the flu vaccine spoils after every single season. It has to be thrown away. So like I talked about in part one, they are estimating they are going to be making 200 million doses this flu season, which is the highest it's ever been and a huge increase just from last year. They're going to have to get somebody to take those and they will find ways to either make them mandatory or incentivize them because they cannot save them to the next year like other vaccines can. Okay, so the stockpile, as it's called, will get destroyed, thrown away, and profits will be lost. People that like to say there's no money in vaccines, you are wrong. Then we have people, and this reminds me of the mass debate. Barry Brownstein says, you've got the general public sometimes saying things like, well, so what? The flu vaccine can't hurt and it might help. Doesn't that kind of remind you of the mask thing? It can't hurt. So why not just do it? It's just a simple thing you can do. If it saves one life, if it protects one person, it's like, well, it doesn't. He says, this logic that is the, so what? The flu vaccine can't hurt and might help. He said, this logic is likely to lead to compliance when the COVID-19 vaccine comes out. Everyone needs something special, a talisman, he says, to get through life. It's like people who take echinacea every flu season. There might not be evidence to show that it works, but for others, they feel it helps them. But what Barry Brownstein is saying, which is what I've been saying too, is you're not forced to take echinacea to keep your job or to go to school. And they're not spending billions to promote echinacea to boost an immune response with no actual proof that it works. So again, do you see the difference here? It's one thing to just have a company saying something, oh, if it turns out to not be true, no big deal. You don't have to choose to take it. But when they are forcing it on you in order for your life to exist, they are now interfering with your constitutional liberties and freedoms. There better damn be evidence that backs up the need to go that far. And some would even argue there's never a need to go that far. 
So Barry says, flu vaccines, like all vaccines, this is many of us know this already, can cause adverse reactions, okay? In 2009, with the H1N1 flu vaccine, Dr. Fauci was a part of this campaign, and he made a YouTube video from the U.S. National Institutes of Health, where his wife um, still works, by the way. And he talked about the safety of the H1N1 flu vaccine. He said, quote, the track record for serious adverse events is very good. It's very, very, very rare that you ever see anything that's associated with the vaccine that's a serious event. Turns out he was wrong. Months later, Australia had to suspend its influenza vaccination program when several young children under five years old developed febrile convulsions. And it was actually one in every 110, which is very, 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 very frequent. You know, when you're looking at vaccine reaction statistics, they like to give you the one in a million. They like to quote that vaccine reactions are one in a million. But like I've said, that's only anaphylactic shock. Things like febrile seizures with the MMR vaccine combined with the chickenpox vaccine are about one in 1,250. Just the MMR vaccine, one in 3,000. Still a far cry from one in a million, but one in 110, that is unbelievably high. And all these young children under five were having these febrile convulsions. And listen to me, febrile seizures are not harmless. That is the old adage from the back in the day, from back in the day. New data is showing the dangers to febrile seizures and know they are not harmless. So you cannot write that off as something that's just not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. It's a neurological reaction and can have permanent long-term damage. So with the H1N1 vaccine, they also had problems in Sweden and Finland. And they had narcolepsy cases that were increasing with adolescents, one in every 55,000. So they had to investigate, the government had to investigate the vaccine and uh, all these safety issues that they had. So this is Dr. Fauci going, this is super safe. And then, oh, but in practice, look what happens. Anyway, um, I get really sick of all of the news reports and all of the packaged brochure bullet points that are given to us about the vaccine program, which is everything is safe. Vaccine reactions are very rare. This is all the theory of what is going on here. That is not the same thing as what is happening, quote, in the field, as Tom Jefferson said. When we're looking at in the field, that's what parents are seeing. This is why so many of us parents have found each other and found the community of medical freedom and informed consent that we are in, this comes from seeing it in our children or in the children of our friends and neighbors. So in practice, these adverse reactions are showing up despite what they keep telling us about safe and effective, safe and effective. And I hope that many of you listening who maybe aren't really familiar with the whole vaccine debate or maybe kind of think, you know, quote, anti-vaxxers are crazy and, um, you know, uneducated, et cetera. You, you, you may very well be somebody who's very pro-vaccine and have had your children completely up to date. But let me tell you something. What brought you to me is your feelings on the COVID situation. And in this COVID situation, you can see your hesitation to believe in our medical establishment and the data that they're giving us. You can see it's being manipulated. You can see people are lying and you can see it's being politicized. I know it's a difficult stretch for you maybe to get here, but what I will tell you and what any educated parent 
will tell you that's done research on their childhood vaccines after adverse reactions in their own children. It's the same thing that's happening. The same thing you are now seeing with the coronavirus for the first time, possibly, is what we've seen for the last several years in the vaccine debate. And I know it seems like they're different, but they're not. And in fact, they involve many of the same players, which is really interesting. But what's important to understand is data is absolutely being manipulated. And it's being manipulated to push American or in other countries too, behavior. They're looking to get you to do something. And in order to get you to do it, they have to sell you on the reason that's going to make you do it. What we're seeing right now with coronavirus, a lot of shame, judgment, and guilt. This has been the thing that has been the most successful for them. They know people are not going to like it if they come down with a heavy hand and threatening fines and police arrests and et cetera. They know that that is not effective for a freedom-loving population. So what they're doing instead is they're getting people to turn on other people. And they're doing that by allowing people to shame and guilt you and that, that feeling of peer pressure, that feeling of, ah, everybody's wearing a mask. I don't want to be that one person in the store that's not wearing one. Everybody's going to look at me. They're going to think things about me. They're going to assume that I'm just selfish and irresponsible and I don't care about people. And that is a very hard thing for people to digest. That's a hard thing for them to swallow. They don't like that feeling. And I understand it's very uncomfortable. In fact, sometimes just even going into a store, you already have the trepidation. You already have the anxiety of what am I going to encounter? Just being a normal human, but because I'm not complying with everybody else, what am I going to encounter? Even with a medical condition, what am I going to encounter today? And it's really stressful. And they know that. So what happens is I know so many people that just wear masks because they need to, to get whatever done. They want to go to Trader Joe's. They want to go somewhere. So they wear it anyway, but they don't believe in it. But this is the point. Many people are willing to comply if it just means getting something done. And it gets very, very exhausting being the one person who is rebelling against something, even if it's unjust and unethical. So people get broken down over time and they know that. Eventually, you're just like, oh, fine, I'll just wear one so I can get my life back to normal. And whether it's a mask or getting the vaccine or whatever, it's all the same concept. So to get you to comply with something, they're going to find techniques that work the best. And the mental manipulation and emotional manipulation are working really well right now. It feels really badly to have somebody think you're just a, a selfish individual who doesn't care about people, especially when you know that you're not that way. The same way that the BLM supporters are going to tell you that you don't care about racial equality if you don't do X, Y, and Z. And you're thinking, wait, no, I do care about it. I don't agree with doing X, Y, and Z, but I, I do believe in equality. Of course, I've always treated people fairly. And this is how that peer pressure kind of comes up and gets a bunch of people to do something. And so I don't know the reasons why they're doing all this. I don't know what's behind it exactly, but I know it is not based on science. It is not based on data. It's not based on evidence. And you can look at so many medical experts across the world that are standing up saying the same thing, but of course they get totally attacked right away when they do so. And so they're in the same boat. They're thinking, well, I don't want to be the one that's, even if I know that this is true. And it's, it's kind of an interesting experiment. You can look at just human behavior at what's going on right now. If you can pull back enough to kind of look from a wider lens and, and take your own personal experience out of it, which I think a lot of people have a hard time doing. 
But it's pretty shocking what's happened this year and how far it's gone and how willing people have been to accept it and to let it happen and to not stand up and say, wait, no. And just like people always make that reference of the boiling of the frog, I had never heard that until discussing the vaccine issue. And um, it's really interesting, but it makes a lot of sense. If you throw a frog into hot water, it's going to hop out. But if you put it in the water when it's room temperature and slowly increase that to boiling, it won't even know it's being killed, essentially. And it's a scary but true visualization kind of of what's happening. Your rights get taken away a little at a time. And I've never been one of those super like libertarian, freedom-loving, like American flag constitution people. But I'll tell you, I am becoming more and more like that when I see what's being eroded right now and what it's based on, which is this flimsy science and this bot science and this fake science. And that is just not okay with me. I mean, I just... I have to morally stand against that because it's just wrong. It's wrong. And I hope enough people stand up and eventually join this to give some pushback or we're going to be in a lot of trouble. So Barry Brownstein, again, professor of economics, he finishes this article by saying, crony capitalists selling cures need government mandates forcing compliance. Using the rhetoric of science, government and industry cover up for their scientific failure to address the most important clinical outcomes for patients. And we have just seen that. So he's talking about the flu debate, but he's also talking about the coronavirus situation. And we've seen that time and time again, quote, because or hashtag because science, but the science really isn't there and they never give it to us and they don't even feel they have to, which what does that say, huh? So again, the name of this uh, article is How Government Sells Fear and Sickness, The Case of the Flu. It was removed from its hosting site, but I found it again. And if you just uh, type that title in, you should be able to find it as well. And he's a professor of economics. I really like what he had to say. There's an additional thing he's written that I want to go into also um, about Operation Warp Speed and why trying to rush this vaccine is a bad idea, like we already don't know that just inherently, but more details about that. Okay, so speaking of the flu vaccine and the fear that they are using to kind of promote it, I want to share with you a letter that was sent to a listener and follower that is in the medical field. I'm going to get rid of all the identifying information so you don't know where this came from. But basically, this is from a medical establishment, a hospital-based medical establishment. Okay, so this is what they say. This fall, we could face a flu season like no other. In the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, it's possible to become sick with the flu and COVID at the same time. People infected with both are more likely to end up hospitalized with severe and sometimes deadly disease. Okay, so that's pretty scary. If you, if you start off with that paragraph, you're thinking, what do I need to do to avoid that, right? So they say, they're going to give you the answer right here. That's why it's more important than ever to get a flu shot. As we await a vaccine for COVID-19, we very strongly encourage flu shots for all of our employees and clinicians to boost your immunity and protect yourself. How does a flu shot boost immunity? I can't stand when I hear people say that. Like it's going to help your immune system, increase your immune system. No, it's going to cause your immune system to fire. And for some people, that weakens your immune system. It certainly weakens you right after you get it, making you more likely to get another respiratory infection. So how is that boosting immunity? I mean, this is a flat out lie that is telling people something that is just the opposite of what's going on and giving you a false sense of security. 
So then they continue, even without the added threat of COVID-19, getting a flu shot remains one of the most important things you can do. And they even go on to say in bold, a flu shot is important even if you're staying home or you're working from home because you still face potential exposure to the influenza virus, which you can then spread to others. Like I just told you in the first part of this episode, there's no evidence that the flu vaccine actually prevents the spread of transmission in the community. There is no evidence. I repeat, there's no evidence to prove getting the flu vaccine prevents community spread. But they are telling you in bold print, even if you work from home, it's your responsibility to get a flu shot because you could be exposed and spread it to others. And so their vaccination rates were already close to 90% at this particular location. And you know what they're asking for? They want those numbers even higher. In bold, please help us raise those numbers even higher. Get your flu shot. Encourage your teammates, family members, and friends to get theirs too. Remember, each of us is a healthcare role model to our families and communities. Doesn't this totally go in alignment with the shaming, judging, and guilt trip that they like to give? It's your responsibility to be a good role model. So let's just teach people to get something that doesn't work and just do it anyway. Let's just teach people to wear a mask because everybody else is doing it, even if the data is not there. Let's just teach people to comply because that's how you're a good leader and a good role model. So anyway, um, they finish by saying, Thank you for taking this clinically proven, compassionate step to protect yourself and others. Clinically proven. Where? Where is it clinically proven? A compassionate step? Why is it compassionate? Is compassionate to do something that doesn't work for others or for yourself? Why is that compassionate? That just sounds stupid to me. And so what they say, they're partnering together to reach a 100% vaccinated workforce. That's their commitment to the health and safety of their patients, communities, and teammates. They want 100% vaccinated workforce for a vaccine that does not prevent the spread and does not actually work and causes serious adverse reactions. They want you to be compassionate and do it anyway. Ugh, this makes me so angry when I read stuff like this. Somebody just sent this to me and um, I had to include it in this episode because this totally highlights what I just said to you after I checked my messages. So now you can see in a real life example in a healthcare setting, how they're using fear to push the flu vaccine and they are lying to you. They're lying to healthcare workers. They're giving you bullet points and sound bites. And those healthcare workers are gonna be repeating those to the patients. And so then those people are being lied to. This is wrong. We need to be able to have an honest discussion about things like medicine and pharmaceutical products. It needs to be honest and open and transparent. It is unacceptable that they continue to give us fake data, fake numbers, and use shame, guilt, and manipulation to get people to comply. This is not okay. And I will be coming back with some more episodes about uh, masks and the science behind them. I haven't really done dedicated episodes to that, but I want to get into some of that. And I also want to talk about um, an interesting article from The Telegraph about the UK and what's going on there now and how they're bracing for a second lockdown that is apparently supposed to be way worse than the first And the author goes into all the different ways things are going to change. And I want to go over that with you guys, too. Of course, I still have interviews that I've already done that haven't been aired yet. And I have some still left to do. There's always so much to cover. I wish I could get these out 
faster to you guys than I can. Maybe in the future, I'll be able to kind of ramp up my speed and get two episodes a week, which would be ideal. You can help um, if you want to support the podcast. There's a link on the episode description where you can be a podcast monthly supporter, even $3, $5, $10 a month, whatever you feel comfortable with would be amazing and is the way that content creators like me can keep giving you good content, which is the goal here at What They Aren't Telling You. So thank you guys for joining me the second part of this episode. Um, Again, if you haven't heard the first part, go back and hear that a lot of great stuff there too. And I will be back with you soon with another episode on What They Aren't Telling You. Thanks for listening. 